Welcome back, Swamp Folk. Once again, we are crossing into international waters to bring you the darkest wilderness content available. More specifically, we're taking a trip down under to Wilson's Promontory National Park in Victoria, Australia, where we'll learn about the mystery that is Patrick Hildebrand. Don't worry, we aren't messing with any of those giant spiders today, at least none that we know about. But the case is unsolved, so you never know. Now, most of you have probably never heard the name Patrick Hildebrand, and that's completely fine, as I have not either before looking into this case. But just know if you like puzzles, you'll love this episode. But before we dive into this case and the strange details around it, let me tell you about Wilson's Promontory. Any national park in Australia will be beautiful, but this one in particular has a fascinatingly rich history. We can spend 20 minutes alone on it, but I'll stick with a summary. The indigenous Kuri people occupied this land at least 6,500 years ago before the first Europeans arrived and it's considered to be home of the Bratuilung clan spiritual ancestor Lu Ern. Even today, this area remains highly significant to their descendants. The first Europeans didn't come along until 1798, and for parts of the 19th century, the promontory was used for seal hunting and shore-based whaling. This carried devastating consequence for local wildlife, so in the 1880s and 1890s, a public campaign was waged to turn these areas into a national park which was made official in 1898. Before the first road was completed in the 1930s, the promontory was only accessible by boat and during World War II, they closed it to the public entirely to use the park as a commando training ground. In 2005, a fire started by the staff got out of control and burned 13% of the park. However, it was deemed necessary to evacuate campers. This incident was nothing compared to 2009, when a lightning strike near Sealer's Cove started a fire that burned 62,000 acres. If this weren't devastating enough, it happened on February 8th, the day after Black Saturday. For those unfamiliar, Black Saturday was the day an intense heat wave, combined with arson and faulty electrical infrastructure, led to hundreds of brush fires throughout Victoria. The fire stopped just a half a mile away from Wilson's Promontory's only community, Tidal River. Its camping area and park headquarters were left unaffected luckily, and they could reopen just a month later. If fires weren't enough to deal with, March 2011 brought enough rainfall to cause major flooding, and the bridge over Darby River became severely damaged. This left Tidal River camping area inaccessible by vehicle for quite some time, and visitors were evacuated by helicopter over the following days. In Easter of 2012, before all the repairs were finally completed, well, that's Australia for you, am I right? Maybe we should find more of these, but before you decide... Let's talk about Patrick Hildebrand first. I think you'll find this case as interesting as I do. In 1987, Patrick Hildebrand was nine years old and living in Dandenong, Victoria, with his mother, Christine, and two brothers. One of these brothers, Joe Hildebrand, actually grew up to become a journalist who has worked for several Australian publications and news outlets. He had a remarkable career, but most notable to our story is when he joined the morning show Studio 10 from the years 2013 to 2020. 
While there, he interviewed with co-host Sarah Harris to discuss the tragedy of losing his little brother at such a young age. He describes their father as a globe-trotting, troubadour hippie who left town to be with another woman when Joe was six and Patrick was four. This had a significant impact on the family. Not only had he left their home, but he had also left their lives. If raising three children as a single mother wasn't tricky enough, Patrick suffered from a severe developmental delay and had epilepsy on top of it. While we as a society still have a long way to go with mental health care, it's treated with far more understanding today than it was in the 1980s. I also want to be clear that Joe didn't name his brother's specific diagnosis in the interview. He refers to Patrick as autistic, and it's widely speculated that he very likely was. But an article from the Daily Mail also named one of his conditions as Gestalt Syndrome. It's a form of epilepsy that seems to either have a connection with or similarity to autism. Also, remember that what we know about mental health has changed a great deal since 1987, so it's no surprise the sources don't exactly match, but what to call it isn't essential. I just want to give you a basic idea of what the Hildebrand's lives were like. According to a case study, his specific type of epilepsy, Lennox-Gestalt syndrome, means intellectual development, is usually delayed and often worsens over time. Other symptoms include multiple seizures and behavioral problems such as hyperactivity, agitation, and aggression. Joe stated Patrick could be excellent one moment but suddenly suffered from a fit of anger. He once picked up an axe and swung it at his older brother. But fortunately, the strike didn't make contact. He also stated Patrick once pointed at a staticky television and said that's what it was like inside of his head. So, while it does seem to line up, please don't forget this information only applies to one type of epilepsy, a type that accounts for just 2 to 5% of cases among children. Like I said, I want you to understand the victim's condition, but don't take it as gospel if someone you know suffers from seizures or a mental illness. Always seek medical advice from actual professionals, okay? My expertise is in a different kind of disturbed. As for the summer Saturday that would fundamentally change the Hildebrand's lives, Patrick, his mom, his brothers, and his cousins were wandering along the lily-pilly gully nature walk in Wilson's promontory when the nine-year-old ran around a bend and into the forest. Nature walks were one of Patrick's favorite activities, so he had been slightly ahead of the group when he suddenly took off. They were roughly ten minutes into the two-and-a-half-mile hike when this happened. And even though the others quickly followed, Patrick was never seen again. When the family initially failed to locate the young boy, they retraced their steps to the car park and drove just over three miles to the ranger's headquarters, where they were able to report him as a missing child. Rangers wasted no time embarking on a piecemeal search, but their efforts were halted on behalf of the evening fog. The following morning, the police search and rescue took over, and an entire operation was officially underway. It was one of the largest manhunts in Victoria's history, with more than 130 men and three helicopters, but for all of their efforts, investigators were never even able to definitively determine if the boy was taken or vanished on his own. I find it difficult to imagine he could have gotten lost if his family was so close behind. But we'll have to save our theories for the end. First, let's go through the entire search so you know where everything stands. The Australian Missing Persons Register is the best collection of information for this case. 
It has several photographs of Patrick and almost every article published since his disappearance. One clipping from 1987 brings an even more ominous tone to the case when it puts the investigators' decisions under great scrutiny. With the initial description of Sirt's efforts, it may sound like every effort was being made to locate Patrick, but this article puts that into question entirely. Their concerns can be condensed into three main issues. First is the discretion of the search in its early stages. So let's go back to those 130 volunteers for a second. They started their search from where Patrick vanished, and by that afternoon they had found a bed of ferns where Patrick's yellow hat, only a few hundred yards away, was found. The police then marked out a roughly one-kilometer rectangle in that area encompassing these two points. Searchers went through everything inside the perimeter. They left no stone unturned in their efforts, which is actually kind of a problem unto itself as you'll soon see this is how the rest of Sunday was spent, and when the day ended, lead investigators made a critical decision that would significantly impact Patrick's case's progression. Lily Pilly Gully happens to lead down into a treacherous swamp, and it was concluded that, had Patrick indeed wandered into this area, he would already be dead. If they had any hope of finding him alive, it would be in the dry uplands. Therefore, Monday morning, lines of searchers stood at arm's length as they fanned out from the original starting point. Bushes and shrubs were flattened as they moved along the paths, marked with tape, and at night, helicopters scanned the area with heat-seeking infrared equipment. Don't forget to factor in that Patrick suffered from severe developmental conditions and seizures. These guys weren't racing a standard clock here. And even before you factor in, they were already disadvantaged, not knowing how Patrick would react under these circumstances. Authorities couldn't be sure if he would approach rescuers or hide from them. With the help of his doctor and psychiatrist, the police tried their best to make an educated guess at his probable movements since becoming lost. Ultimately, it was concluded that the boy might have been lured from the path by a butterfly or lizard, but once there, it's unlikely he would have registered the need to call for help. Instead, it's far more likely that he would have simply continued in the same direction, unaware of being lost. This theory factors into why the police decided to shake things up on Tuesday. Instead of continuing with the same plan, they jumped ahead of the leading search party and started lowering additional personnel into higher, more rugged terrain. This would become the second primary concern of the investigation. John Butler with emergency services offered to assist with the investigation on the day Patrick went missing, and when his offer was declined, he continued to provide his assistance each day afterward. Finally, he arrived on the scene that Friday, but once there, he told reporters that the advance bush drops put into effect on Tuesday would have been his first move. The higher-ups could have taken this comment better, and it effectively ruined any chance Butler had to participate. Afterward, he refused further remarks except that his aboriginal trackers were better suited to the task than the bushwalkers assembled by police. Though Inspector Bob Hanna defended his strategy to the bitter end, John's comment would never be forgotten in the face of failure. Finally, this brings us to our third main issue, arguably the most concerning. Whether due to his minor clash with John Butler or for other reasons entirely, officials were against full use of the state emergency services professional aboriginal trackers. The three trackers involved weren't brought in until that Friday. But 
Honestly, by that point, the search efforts were reduced to only 60 men, and Inspector Hannah only had a mere 20% chance of finding Patrick alive. Most people, including Patrick's family, felt that the tracker should have been utilized from day one. Unfortunately, being so late in the game, there was little left that they could actually do. As mentioned before, previous ground search attempts left no stone unturned. Any sign that would have been there was long erased. Why did they not use the best trackers their country has to offer? Well, I keep seeing that Inspector Hannah actually had the option to use them from the beginning, yet decided to stick with tactics that have been proven successful in the past, namely search and rescue teams and the most advanced technology of the time. While present, the trackers were taken to a footprint near where the yellow hat was found, even after casts were made, it could never really be confirmed as belonging to the little boy. By Saturday morning, only 15 men were left, and by the afternoon, the search effort was called off altogether. Not everything said about the searchers was negative, though. A 2013 article from The Australian quoted a senior volunteer searcher saying, We searched so hard and for so long. People put so much effort into it. We were loaded into helicopters, winched down onto the ridge, marched down, and then winched back into the helicopter to do it all again the next day. The vegetation was incredibly thick, but the entire area was completely trampled by the fifth day. We didn't know what more we could really do, honestly. He also shared a story of a senior sergeant, saying he had a son roughly the same age as the missing boy. For years after this incident, the sergeant would still go down to search in his own time. But sadly, it seems he suffered a little bit of a breakdown due to sheer disbelief that they could not find Patrick, even after their abundant resources. Before we start poring over the possibilities, I would like to share that Joe Hildebrand had to say on the matter. When asked what he believed, he responded, I just honestly don't know. You sort of try not to think about it. When asked if he believed in the possibility that Patrick was still alive, if he could have found his way toward a road, Joe was understandably hesitant to answer, but the few words he did say said so much. I think that's just probably where madness lies. Everyone grieves in their own way, and this is one of the healthier ways I've seen, so bravo. Anyway, on to those theories, and let's start with the one most people believe. Did Patrick simply wander off on his own? Could he have been distracted by a butterfly, as officers theorized? It's a shame the trackers couldn't look over the area before it was trampled. We could have learned so much more. How did he get away that fast if he had run ahead into the woods? Well, the sad fact of this all is, it happens all the time. The wilderness can be as cruel as beautiful and doesn't play favorites. It gives and takes without prejudice or sympathy. As for wondering if Patrick would respond to searchers, if he were autistic, they tend to develop powerful interest in certain things, and if he felt this way with nature, it's feasible he could become distracted enough to not understand the consequences of venturing off or maybe not even notice his name being called at all. The Australian outback is enormous, and nine-year-old boys are typically small creatures. That's just physics. Then there's the yellow hat. It was the only sure sign of Patrick that was found during the entire search effort, and Joe said it was very special to his brother. He didn't believe Patrick would ever simply take it off and leave it there. That leaves two possibilities that I can see. One, 
is that he may have had a seizure and become disoriented or injured himself in a fall, while the second possibility leads us to the next theory. What if he was taken? It would be straightforward to lose his hat in a struggle, but if there was a struggle, how did no one notice signs or hear his cries for help? It's hard to say if he could have been lured away. Some children, whether neurotypical or divergent, are more trusting than others. If he felt safe in the forest, he may have been more at ease than in an everyday situation. No evidence of foul play was ever discovered, but you guys know how I feel about these situations. I've said it before, and I'll say it plenty more. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. An astronomer named Carl Sagan said it first. Thanks, Carl. He wasn't even an investigator. Knowledge is power, kids. Soak it up. If someone did take Patrick, they must have been in the exact right place at the exact right time to do it. If the family never mentioned to seeing anyone else in the area, and indeed, that would have been notable, some wondered if family members were as close behind him as they claimed. They went on nature walks often enough, and it is reasonable to assume they felt secure with Patrick's behavior on them. But again, that's just speculation. As far as I know, the family has never fallen under suspicion, not for anything intentional or neglectful. Sometimes it's hard to accept that accidents just happen. Nine times out of ten, he would have been right around the corner as expected. But this was one of those other times. Of course, there are plenty of missing 411 speculations out there as well. The Yowie is a creature referred to as the Australian Bigfoot. Descriptions vary, but it's usually described as a hairy ape man, anywhere from 7 to 12 feet with large, flat noses, giant mouths, bat-like ears, and feet that are much larger than a human being's. Reports of its behavior also vary from timid to violent and aggressive. Personally, a creature so massive would have left footprints that would be hard to not notice by anyone. So, I'll have to respectfully disagree on this one. As much as I love an excellent Yowie story, I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody's story. And with that swamp folk, that does it for this episode. So, down in the comments, let me know. What did you think of Patrick's case? Do you think he was a troubled child who ran off and had the worst possible luck at every turn? Was some deranged psychopath in the right place at the right time to snatch him up and make a run for it at the right moment? Or can you think of another explanation entirely? If there were underground cave systems or tunnels, I would say he could have fallen into a hole, but I just can't think of any other possibilities, at least not natural ones anyway. This is one of those instances where it truly feels like the victim vanished without a trace. Personally, this case gives me very similar vibes to the Stacey Aris case we've covered in the past. If you'd like to learn more about that one, you can find a link on screen or in the description. Anyways, let me know how you'd feel about exploring more Australian parks in another video. And please, for the love of Shrek, don't forget to make that sweet... And please, for the love of Shrek... Don't forget to make that sweet clicking love to those like buttons and to subscribe so you don't miss a brand new video. Don't forget, I upload new videos almost every single day in all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to see me cover, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or in the comments down below. I'm always looking for new content. Anyways, thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp the way you do. I'll see you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all the other good social medias. And I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.